people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. My name is Alex, and today I'm joined again by my temporary guest co-host, Solan Gunderson. Hi, Solan. Hi, hi, Alex. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. So, just before we get started with today's interview, um, just to say that um, you can support us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/TwelveRulesForWhat, or you can follow our Instagram or Twitter at TwelveRulesForWhat. And also, just to say, we're part of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts, and you can find them on Channel Zero, the website, channelzero.net, I believe. Um, so check those other shows out. They're really sick, too. Um, so let's get on with the today's episode. I guess we, we're talking to Antti Faramerli, who is uh, a lecturer and researcher and author um, on the far right and particularly around the uh, kind of the desires of fascism like the kind of more fundamental kind of drives behind fascism and we'd cover like a you know kind of a lot of his work in the interview um i guess before we get going i guess what how do you feel about um the kind of concept of micro fascism because we kind of bring it up to him about how it it could be considered quite a broad term like you can find fascism basically in every facet of society and in, within the nuclear family and within your workplace and within leftist groups, for example. And it, it gets to a point where it might become a bit of an unuseful term. How do you, how do you feel about microfascism as a, as a concept? Um, I think there's definitely something, I mean, that's my, what you've outlined there is my biggest misgiving about it, I guess. Um, although I have to say that having engaged a bit with some of Anthony's work before the discussion, um, you know, it's it doesn't seem like a term that people who study that kind of thing throw around easily. Like there's a lot of nuance there in the detail that, you know, gets maybe a little lost um, in the kind of concept of, oh, the fa- real fascism was, the, was inside of us all along kind of thing. And I think it does... Um, speak to something that I certainly think about quite a lot, which is not um, not like horseshoe theory in the liberal sense, right? Like that, that kind of is something that I think both as a matter of principle and as a matter of kind of just level-headed observation is something we should reject. But I think it's something that people who research the far right, research fascism, or people who organize and uh, fight against fascism in uh, any number of different ways. One of the things that strikes me about kind of trying to do this kind of work is that you do end up in proximity to fascism a lot more, right? So there's, there's some kind of, you're in proximity to it, you're thinking about it, you're dealing with it, you come to kind of I think I think you've discussed this on on this podcast in the past as well that you sort of you know in the process of getting to grips with it you kind of at times start to see the world through their eyes or start you know having to have well having to deal with the fact that you're you're opposing something intensely hierarchical and brutal and that you know will have an impact on your thought and practice so I think as a way of kind of putting one's finger on some of that I think it's pretty useful yeah, and I, I think 
I think, like, I mean, this is obviously a very Deleuzean thing, but we can use macrofascism is just a concept, and we can use it however we want. And I think there is a real use in looking at the kind of more kind of basic reactionary impulses that kind of feed a lot of people in the UK and in different parts of the world and understand where that kind of, you know, instinctive reactionary kind of um, kind of response is. You know, we bring it up in the interview, but like you see, uh, for example, a protest on Twitter, for example, Just Stop Oil. And you see a lot of their Twitter replies are just 50-year-old blokes um, who are probably petty landlords or, or small business owners um, saying things like kill them all, bring in the army, run them over, any shaming, bring back hanging, whatever. And that kind of... And these guys are probably, you know, they wouldn't consider themselves fascists. They consider themselves probably patriots, um, conservatives, definitely, or most likely, um, rather than being like explicit fascists. And yet there is a kind of interesting oppressive uh desire a desire for the subjugation of somebody else or the, the the harm towards someone else which i think we kind of dismiss at our peril in some ways mm, absolutely and i think there's kind of related to that i guess for for those of us who've um had formative political experiences within uh you know within anarchism or within a lot of um I suppose, like small C communist or large C communist possibly as well, like political traditions, we always have to confront this kind of problem. And I think it's it's clearest in, in the anarchist worldview in a sense that like if we believe that humans are, you know, broadly agreeable, um, you know, some some iteration of this kind of humanist perspective, then we have a real problem of explanation of why why indeed where does this kind of desire to subjugate other people come from? Um, why And why does it seem to have such legs on it in so many different political settings? Um, which I think is a very real, is a very real question that, that we need to work through. And I think um, this kind of microfascism perspective, and I guess the kind of psychoanalytic, psychological perspectives that Anthony is working with is, is, a way of approaching those questions that I'm certainly not very familiar with. I haven't really studied in depth. So I thought it was really interesting to hear like those approaches to it, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, often a lot of these texts that were, that they have their own jargon and they have their own kind of um, incomprehensibility to them. That takes a little, a bit to get through. I think there's real use in them, but I also, I also think there's use in, in, there's like use in sitting with them a little bit and trying to understand them rather than kind of dismissing them as like kind of like uncomprehensible academic waffle, mm. which at, at, you know, at first glance could be someone could have that reaction. So I think there's really useful stuff in there. We, you've just got to be able to know, know a little bit to be able to, to get through the initial hurdle of the, of the language and stuff, I think. Yeah, but I think it 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 chimes with it chimes with a lot of a lot of um, the types of issues that I think maybe many of the listeners will be more used to thinking about. Like, you know, um, if you grow up in a authoritarian or oppressive society, how do you shake that off in yourself and you're dealing with your friends and your comrades? Um, and on a wider scale, 
you know, if we're trying to build a movement to free all of us in a very hierarchical and repressive society, how do we avoid reproducing, you know, and re reenacting all the shitty behavior that we're socialized into at the level of our movement? I mean, those are quite familiar questions, you know, whether, whether you're talking about anarchism and its kind of perspectives on prefiguration or, you know, the Maoist practices of criticism, self-criticism, or, uh, you know, the kind of, as the parts of the Kurdish liberation movement put it, like building a revolutionary personality. It's not wholly unfamiliar, I think, either. Yep, agree. Anyway, uh, I think we've discussed a little bit and we've waffled on a little bit. Um, so we should probably get to the expert and 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 get on with the interview. Um, yeah. Thanks, everybody, and enjoy the interview. So, uh, welcome to the show, Anthony. Um, thank you for coming. And, Thanks for having me. Oh, great, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you, in, in uh, first and foremost, in your work, um, do you want to say a little bit about your work, a little bit about yourself before we start? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I guess I, I usually say that I'm a psychosocial um, theorist as well as a practitioner. So that's to say that um, I, I have a hand in both the kind of academic side and, and academic research as well as mental health work. Um, so so I, I run groups and, and I do work with um, in different kind of settings. Um, and, and that's very much my background. Um, most of my research is concerned with questions of fascism, especially microfascism, and, and how and how as a kind of mechanism of, of kind of um, authoritarian expulsion and violence, how that scales up fr from the kind of unconscious level to larger social formations, and, and then how it also scales down from social movements to the level of the individual unconscious. Um, with a specific focus on groups, group processes, group think. Right, that sounds really interesting. Um, and and can I? But I I'm curious. How did you with with this kind of background in uh, mental health practice and psychosocial practice? What drew you to to studying fascism and theorizing fascism in that context? Well, I, I think. Um... Michel Foucault, in the introduction for Anti-Oedipus, wrote that the street strategic ad adversary of the day is fascism, but not the big fascism of like Nazi Germany or Italy, but rather these kind of small micro forms of aggression and um, micro desires to oppress others. Um, and this is what we need to be resisting on the daily and I think that's that's very much correct. Um, you know, when I was more involved in the what's referred to now as the alt-globalization movement um, and activism in the late 90s and early 2000s, one of the things I saw was the way in which, um, you know, kind of, kind of left anarchist collectives start, started kind of taking on these very, very authoritarian and problematic formats, you know where you got kind of anarchist left collectives doing training with AK-47s, talking about killing, um, not, not only, you know, talking about kind of destruction of the other, 
inserts the other was a kind of Republican, reactionary, racist, you know, all, all the kind of typical things that you would want to be opposed to on the right. But they also start talking about expelling and even killing, in some instances, liberals and, and people that were kind of moderate and center of the road. And, you know, that, that a true revolutionary position had to be one um, of, of almost predicated on a certain form of extermination, you know, um, and I saw this happening in activist circles, you know, at, at least at, at the level of discourse, if not at the level of actually, you know, kind of trying to enact it. Um, and what happened is, is this created these tensions and the activist collectives just started kind of eating themselves alive. Um, so I thought what, what we need to do then is think through a practice of resistance that, that not only resists, you know, kind of existential forces, existential violence, but also resist that internal um, groupthink temptation to try to kind of squash out any heterogeneity, you know, squash out any internal dissent. Um, because as soon as you start having that drive to a homogenous, unified whole, you know, it, it becomes this kind of death drive fascistic impulse. Hmm. So um, it, it sounds like in this psychosocial uh conversations and and theories from that tradition that the word fascism then it's not just used to talk about a specific historical movement or uh you know contemporary movements that emulate or that you know seek to imitate or have similarities to those historical movements it's referring to something a little broader a little more general can you can you explain a bit more about uh this sense of the word fascism and how it sure might be different from the way other people use it? Sure. Um, so, so I take this understanding of fascism from Felix Guattari. Um, he gives it its first really kind of thorough um, elaboration in an essay called Everyone Wants to Be a Fascist, where what's really interesting about that essay is, is he doesn't really spend a lot of time thinking about the right, but whether the way in which authoritarianism creeps into discourses of the left. Um, and how this kind of drive within the left becomes this kind of self-defeating um, process that mimics that, you know, of the right. Um, and, and then he's like, the only way to resist microfascism is what, what he referred to as a micropolitics of desire. So, so in some ways it's more general, but it's, it's also more... It's, it's more specific to, to what happens at the unconscious and interpersonal level. So it's all these kind of drives within the group to dominate others. So fascism, you know, at least in its micro form, is that kind of destructive drive to dominate, to control. You know, it, it's the death drive instinct liberated. Right. That's. I think they... Go ahead, sorry. This idea of desires as kind of a, a fundamental part of politics or I guess our general life is, is, is super key. And, you know, I often think about a lot of my thinking recently has been about how people become, get a certain politics or a certain political view. And a, a lot of it is not kind of a rational, there's no kind of rationality to a lot of this stuff. You're not reading these things and thinking rationally. It's a, it's a much more kind of feelings driven thing in many ways. And you can see these kind of very instinctive desires to dominate in throughout kind of 
I suppose, general culture, but specifically within Britain, you can see things like on Twitter, these uh, kind of impulses towards authoritarian um, fantasy. So like you see, like, a, for example, a Just Stop Oil protest, and you'll see comments in the replies on Twitter saying things like, bring in the army, shoot them all. Mm-hmm. I wish I could run them over with my car, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's that kind of unthinking... Um, unthinking reaction that is really important, I think, or at least really interesting to me to unpack. Where does this kind of reactionary impulse come from? No, ab- absolutely, and, and I think you really see this in, in its most kind of pure expression, precisely in digital spaces. Um, more recently, I, I've been really interested in how microfascisms um, metastasize. You know through social media, through kind of digital culture more generally, um, and, and not only kind of corrupt specific forms of sociality online, but then how that, you know, results in offline, you know, violence and offline death. And, and I think a lot of it, you have to look at the very kind of algorithmic architecture of, of the internet. Um, Imogen Piper and I recently wrote a, a, a short paper called Everyone Wants to Be a Fascist Online, um, kind, of, kind of riffing on that Guattari essay I, I referenced earlier. And, and in that paper, we actually look at the way in which um, the bump algorithm works to highlight specific pieces of content. And, and, we, and we use a psychosocial framework to think about how the structures, the kind of protocols that, that you get in different social media um, algorithms. We, we were specifically interested in uh, Reddit and YouTube and Facebook. But but how those algorithms function through a modulation of, of different feedback loops. So, so one is they, they hold your attention on a specific piece of content. And, and the longer they hold your attention there, you know, in this kind of closed loop system, the intensity grows and you have a much more intense psychic investment, you know, in that object. Um, but that becomes unstable. So then they modulate to a different feedback loop that sends you on, you know, in a kind of related pattern, um, usually to more extreme content. And, and what happens then um, is ideas, forms of discourse, that maybe at one point seemed quite repulsive to you um, become banal. You know, you know they, they become a kind of everyday way of speech. Um, and this everyday way of speech, especially when it's predicated on denying the humanity of others um, and, and predicated on a drive to complete kind of homogeneity as to who gets, as in who gets the right to be considered even human um, is fundamentally the problem of fascism. And what, what we argued in that paper is that the very architecture of digital spaces is one that facilitates that, um, that, that kind of pattern in the drive to homogeneity. Um, what, ha- what happened is part of the kind of psychic investment you get into these spaces gets almost clipped um, and amplified and then that bit of investment overcodes the rest of your thinking. So, so in a way, then you also get the feedback loop between the user and the system. So, so you get this kind of multiple effect 
um, which leads down a fairly dark path. Yeah, and um, one of one of my questions was going to be like the difference between, I guess, far right radicalization or or a more, more general term like becoming more fascist. Mm-hmm. The difference between on an online space and in a physical space, and and one of those obviously kind of interactions with this kind of quite faceless opaque system which is held in California somewhere or in China, if it's TikTok or whatever, you know, like somewhere mm-hmm. that we, we don't understand too well. Um, and the other thing I think that I find really interesting about online radicalization or this process of becoming more fascist online is how the different spaces in which it takes place. So, for example, it speaks to like a kind of element of modern alienation that a lot of these people are sitting in their bedrooms or in their living rooms on their own engaging with other people in a mediated form Mm. whereas compared to how you became a fascist before this kind of internet this technology was was popularized was it was on the street it was in meetings it was on demonstrations it was in a big collective group of people and i think that's the interesting thing and it's the question of whether or how the radicalization online translates into activity in physical space and in the in the real real world quote unquote you know what i mean yeah yeah i I mean i I think you're i I think you're right that that a lot of it stems from alienation um you know the 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 main problem really i think of kind of capitalist modernity um and and, you know however you want to define it kind of capitalist modernity post-modernity um you know post Bretton woods capitalism is individuals are fundamentally um, alienated, right? Not just in the Marxist sense, but but also in the kind of psychoanalytic sense, where where you become cut off from senses of community and communion. Um, and, and this kind of this alienation um, injects within the psyche of a kind of a vulnerability. Um, that wants to lash out as well as latch onto, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is, you know, alienation didn't, you, you know, the internet didn't invent alienation, but it gave a vehicle to um, kind of supercharge it in some ways. But it also gave you a sense of finding community. What, what you get is... Um, you know, within the manosphere and specifically the incel uh, corner of the manosphere is a similar sense of community um, as you would have, you know, in kind of fascisms of Nazi Germany, right? Um, or, the, or the fascisms in Spain where, um, you know, people are still radicalized in communal spaces, but the form of mediation is very different. Um, but but nevertheless, it's always going to be a kind of architecture of sociality. So, so one of the things that I take from institutional psychotherapy, um, which was a movement of radical psychoanalysts and militants that, that included Franz Fanon and Felix Guattari and Francois Tosquez, um, is they always spoke really powerfully about the need of um, how space impacts forms of sociality and can open up or close down social relations 
and, and indeed the contours of how you socialize are always impacted phenomenologically by the space that you are within. Um, so, so in Fanon's chapter on violence, he talks about this um, in relation to the, the native city, the colonized region of the town versus the colonizer um, part of town. And, and he talks about how the, the very forms of which sociality are possible are determined by the um, ambiance of, of these areas of the city. Like the mood or the vibe kind of. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, you know, so, so they take this notion of ambiance from, from phenomenological philosophies, specifically Merleau-Ponte. But, but he talks about how different spaces will create an ambiance and sociality functions along the coordinates set by the ambiance of the space. So, you know, in psychotherapy, they, they took this to mean when you're working on in different wards or in different sections of a hospital, um, how do you make interventions into the space around and, and encompassing the, the residents um, in order to create what, what Jean Rory referred to as the potential for chance therapeutic encounters? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but this is all done through spatial intervention and it's always mediated but by the kind of space they're in. So what, what I'm interested in is the way in which as a process that hasn't significantly changed, but what's changed is the kind of architectural relations that encompass it in, in online spaces. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about this relationship between these feedback loops and, and one of them is oftentimes, oh, well, whenever like one of these communities produces an act of like spectacular violence, you know, so for example, something like the Charlottesville, Charlottesville um, riot, however you want to call it, race riot, yeah. or the 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 um, the shooting in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. We see the we see a lot of the kind of products of of online space. You know, the memes that are produced, the ways of speaking, the images are kind of fed back into the system, so they they appear in real real life, quote unquote, and then. Are fed back. You know, look in, look at the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto. It's full of these kind of four chan memes and mm-hmm. other kind of racist kind of paraphernalia that you find in various corners of the internet. And it's, I guess, I my point is, it's it's very difficult to know how we, as anti-fascists, so as people on the left or people in, interested in liberation and defense of of other people and preservation of life, it, it feels very difficult how to intervene in that loop because it's very hard to tell where some violence is going to come from or where some kind of something is going to like appear and then how to like disrupt all this kind of stuff going on. It seems very overwhelming without, of course, you know, buying out Google and then just revealing <laughs> the algorithm to the world, which is obviously not via, not a going strategy. No, no, not unless someone has a billion dollars lying around somewhere. Um... <laughs> I mean, I guess my, my question is like, just quickly, how, like, how would, how would, have you any thoughts about how to intervene in these kind of spaces or if an intervention is even helpful? No, I, I think intervention is helpful. Um, but, but I do think the coordinates have to be set in such a way as that it's not um, reacting to the architectures that you're within. So, so a, a concrete example of this 
um, our memes. You know, um, one of the people I work with right now, a really brilliant researcher named Virginia um, Lazaro, um, her work is is on kind of mimetic desire and the way in which the alt-right produces visual images. And, and one of the kind of, one of the things that she argues is that memes have a kind of zero point that that's say they're all kind of moving towards a kind of certain form of fascism, at least a fascism of the micro level. Um, so when you see the left trying to produce memes to out meme the right, you know, th- this becomes this kind of zero sum game. Yeah. Um, and part of that, just thinking at the level of kind of strategy and tactics, it's because you're trying to intervene on the same basis as that which you're opposing. So, so for resistance to have any kind of traction, it has to change the way in which the conversations happen. Um, a lot of times that must mean, you know, by necessity, that, that sitting around arguing with people you know, on Reddit or, um, you know, arguing with an aunt on Facebook or something um, isn't going to get you very far, right? But it's a way of how do you change the conditions within which you're communicating. Sometimes that might mean um, meeting people where they're at and, and just trying to ask them a lot of, rather than fighting with them, just asking them a lot of probing questions. Um, one person I used to skateboard with um, who I always knew as a kind of anti-fascist um, punk, you know, he was early on with the QAnon stuff and started getting into a pretty dark place. Um, but rather than arguing the points with him or trying to debate it on logic, it was more just trying to see what's going on with him at the time, right? Um, and, and where these rabbit holes were coming from or where the desire to kind of follow this was coming from. Um, and, and that was effective, but it, it had a time, you know, it had a time cost to it. You know, it took a lot of time. Um, but it was able to change the conversation within which this was happening. So I, I do think there's a lot of power there. But at the same time, I also wouldn't want to advocate that all fascists need is a hug. You know, <laughs> like, like I'm not trying to take that kind of liberal perspective either. Um, because when things do metastasize to the extent of you get people like Dylan Roof, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think we have the luxury of trying to sit down and talk with them online, you know, then they have to be opposed in in the most, you know, kind of, kind of strictest format. But, but hopefully before we get there, there could be enough interventions made to change the conversation. Yeah, and I think, just very quickly, and then Stellan, you can go, I think they're actually thinking about it, there are actually very few people who are like ideologically committed fascists in that they, whatever you do, they will continue to be fascists and continue to organise actively. You know, there's a few people in the UK I can think of, I, you know, I refer to Mark Collette a lot as the as leader of Patriotic Alternative, who was you know, a youth leader in the BNP and, you know, still going you know, 20, 20, 25 years into his life. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other people were like, the, the reason they got to this politics is a, is quite understandable and quite, not like, not excusable, but like, 
also, I think, reversible. But uh, yeah. yeah, there's a moment of hope. Uh, Solan? Yeah, I um, I was just thinking while you were speaking, Anthony, about the, the left's attempt to out-meme. And I, it has often struck me a little bit that there's something about, like, you know, the people flooding landlord Reddit with, like, memes of Chairman Mao with the laser eyes and, you know, threatening millions of dead landlords that has, like, a certain punch that just, like, kind of friendly Kropotkin advocating mm-hmm. mutual aid just doesn't in online spaces. And I've often wondered about that. But... I guess I'm. My question is, um, the overall argument, then this idea of this microfascism, then this this idea of desire, the desire to dominate, being kind of present um, in lots of forms. Um, but I'm wondering, a part of the um, part of kind of fascist or authoritarian thought, um, particularly in the in the manosphere, but elsewhere as well, is about this kind of naturalizing you know hierarchies like this is just like this these kinds of aggression and domination this is just human nature it is how it is and at least fascists like align with that reality um and i suppose what's the um can you talk a little bit about the difference between the idea of microfascism, which is also kind of saying that this desire this drive to dominate is present all over the place and in all of us in a way but it doesn't sound like they're making the same argument that, you know, it is human nature to want to dominate others and so on. It sounds like a different argument, but can you kind of unpack that or explain that a little bit? Um, I I guess I'm always a little suspicious of people who who are all in on these kind of biological essentialist positions of like, you know, like the the kind of neo-reactionary stuff where where they have that very peculiar racialized hierarchy, you know, where, where it's, um, that East Asians are the most intelligent and then white folk and then, you know, so forth and so on. Um, and, and this, the kind of perversely named human biodiversity theory, you, you know, but, but these kind of ways in which we cling on to these naturalized sense of hierarchical orders based on biological traits, it's, it's always, it always feels, you know, even by those who, who seem to, you know, propose those those ideas the most, you know, that, that they're grasping at straws. Um, and, and they never can kind of back it up before they just get angry and resort to violence, you know? So, so I don't know how many people are really as invested in those thoughts as that they claim to be. And, and indeed, um, what you see happening over and over and over again within alt-right spaces are, are these kind of little revolts against that. You know, some people who, you know, women who are happy to argue, you know, the kind of trad wife perspective, but then once they're treated as a trad wife, kind of rebel against that, you know, within a certain coordinates that they're still trying to be, you know, Aryan, that they're still tied to the project of whiteness, but, but yet they see themselves as the exception to that biological fixidity. Um, so, so there's always a slippage there where, and that's the area where, you know, you have to kind of hold on to and, and find a way to wedge yourself in, you know, or wedge the argument in to kind of explode it out. Another thing that I've noticed, uh, reading through your work in advance of this episode is that you put a lot of emphasis on the colonial, um, experience, colonial history. Um, and I know that there's, there's, 
anti-colonial revolutionaries, militants who in the 1930s and 1940s made the argument that fascism as it was emerging in Europe was really the application of colonial methods and colonial politics um, and inside of Europe. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between colonialism and fascism and anti-colonial struggle and anti-fascism? Like what can anti-fascists today learn from anti-colonial struggles in the past and present? No, absolutely. Um, so a, a movement that, that that is quite close to my heart, um, you know, are, are the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico. So, <clears throat> you know, the, the Zapatista uprising happened um, when I was quite young, and, and I grew up just about an hour north of Mexico. Um, spent a lot of my childhood in Mexico. So, so it was something that, that was a kind of structuring aspect of my life um, for most of my life. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about Zapatismo is the way in which they're really explicit to tie land extraction to the way in which racialized individuals are relegated to the natural world so therefore, an extractivist process that, that, that takes from the land sees those colonized as just another resource to be extracted, um, you know, within the same kind of way in which um, <clears throat> fascism manifests, you know, here in the kind of global north. You know, that is to say, whiteness looks to mine um you know experiences of of others you know for their value and then discards the rest right you know whiteness is always invested in the maintenance of whiteness um as in some ways disentangled from you know any any kind of biological schema you know but whiteness is a kind of signifier of power so what you get with the zapatistas that that i think is really interesting is um a way in which they see colonialism and fascism as both inherently tied to processes of capitalism. Um, capitalism within this system is one that's predicated on growth through destruction, right? Uh, what's often referred to, at, at least these days, as um, you know, kind of creative destruction. Um, so they look at the problem as always originating from what is fundamentally a psychotic, destructive system. And the more that system structures our everyday social lives, the more it kind of touches um, the individuals at a kind of psychic level. So, so that is to say capitalism... Um, is the structuring force of, of both the psycho and social kind of fields that we exhibit or that, that we live in. Um, and, and capitalism is fundamentally a fascistic system. Um, and there's no escaping that. So therefore, anti-colonial struggle has to be by necessity pegged to both anti-capitalist struggle um, and anti-fascist struggle. These things become, you know, kind of bound up together. It's, it's always happening 
um, within one another as a, as a form of struggle. Um, that it, what happens, and, and I'm going to use a kind of, there, there's a certain, there's a psychological um, phrase that, that, that I find helpful here that you get from Melanie Klein, um, and, and she calls it the, the um, paranoid schizoid position. So both colonialism um, as well as capitalism are based on a paranoid schizoid position. That, that basically is a psychic state, a psychic position, where you see existential threat everywhere. You're trying to securitize your life at the expense of the lives around you. Um, it's fundamentally destructive, and it's fundamentally predicated on an alienated subject. So, so you're alienated from social world, you're alienated from your material world, you see anything other than you as an existential threat, and then you try to securitize your life through the destruction of those lives. I, I, mean, um, I think that's, yeah, I yeah. think that's, you can see that right, right now, what's going on with uh, in Palestine. Yeah. Um, and some of the arguments that are being made by, uh, not, I mean, not just... Um, you know, Israeli cabinet members, but like just people passing online, Zionists and um, people committed to the wedded to the Israeli state online, posting about the need to basically eradicate Gazans, wipe out Gaza in order to be safe from quote unquote terrorism or, or other things as well. And exactly, there's a really potent mixture there in Israel of you know capitalist forces, of fascist forces. And of obviously colonialist forces kind of come in, merging together in this kind of horrific, intertwined thing, which is horrible. Obviously, um, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to. We're running out of time, and we're going to have to close up. But this has been super interesting, Anthony. Um, yeah, thank you so much so for yeah, taking the time. You. No, thank thank you so much for inviting me um, here. It's it's been a really interesting conversation. Do you have anything you'd like to plug before we before we get off the air? That I'd like to plug. Um... <laughs> I would say I would say do if you can. I think it's free on the Goldsmith repository. Go and read. Everyone wants to be a fascist online. Um, there's some really useful stuff in there, and I I I found it really interesting reading it. Yeah, it, it's free on the on the Goldsmith repository. Um, it's also I'm pretty sure you can see you you can find everyone wants to be a fascist online as well as my, my first, actually the, the two books I've published, you can get those for free on ARG. Um, in fact, I was able to download better quality PDFs from ARG before I had my own author PDFs. So um, so definitely get, get those books from ARG. That's a strong recommendation for any academic book, I'd say. <laughs> okay, um, thank you. Uh, goodbye, everybody. All right. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me here. Thank you. Bye.